worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi everyone, Karina and Dan here. We are really excited to bring you a phenomenal discussion with Dr. Ed Casper at Hopkins on the evaluation of new onset heart failure. During the show, we talk about Dr. Casper's mentor, Dr. Ken Baufman. For context, Dr. Ken Baufman served as director of the cardiology division at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, before being recruited to Brigham Hospital in 2002. However, unfortunately, he died at the young age of 63 when he was struck by a car while jogging at the AHA scientific sessions in Orlando in 2009. Dr. Balfin was such a hero in cardiology, and we talk about him all the time here as he has really inspired a whole generation of cardiologists at Hopkins. Dr. Myron Weisfeld, a cardiology great in his own right, called Dr. Balfin a physician's physician and an exemplar of how you can lead and teach as a model to others. His thousands of patients knew him and benefited from his great expertise and his care. Dr. Gary Gottlieb, the president of Brigham Hospital at the time, said that Dr. Balfman's passion for his patients was woven into the fabric of the hospital. He represented the very best in medicine and that he cared so deeply for each and every person he touched. Not only was he an extraordinary clinician, but he was a respected and accomplished researcher and a brilliant mentor to dozens of young men and women who benefit from his nurturance and wisdom. With that in mind, we'll jump right into the episode. Hey everyone, Dan and Corrine here again, and we're back in the office of Dr. Casper for just another phenomenal talk. This time, we're here for our special series dedicated to Heart Failure Awareness Week. If you haven't checked it out, we last met with Dr. Casper for episode 5 as part of our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy series. The episode was wildly popular, and it is a must-listen to as Dr. Casper delivers bucket loads of tremendous pearls. It was one of our most popular episodes. Dr. Casper is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University with a BA in Natural Sciences. He earned his MD degree at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, his internship and residency in internal medicine, and served as assistant chief of service of the Thayer Service, as well as fellowship in cardiology, were completed at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he then joined the faculty in 1993. He's currently the Director of Clinical Cardiology at Johns Hopkins Medicine. He served as Director of Heart Failure from 1993 to 2003, and then again recently for two years. Dr. Casper, welcome back to the show. We're really excited to get going. And team, before we jump in, remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. We are going to jump right into our discussion on the evaluation of new onset heart failure. First, we'd like to start with what is your approach to the evaluation of a patient with new onset heart failure? So let me first say uh, thank you to my fellow cardio nerds for asking me to talk again. My approach has changed dramatically in you know, the last two decades when I started off as a cardiology fellow. If I was known for anything in research, it was for the causes of cardiomyopathy. And my mentor, Ken Boffman, and I had set up an evaluation program for new-onset cardiomyopathy that included a heart biopsy and a lot of blood work and a number of other things. And through this, we evaluated some 2,000-odd 
patients, and we published these results in the New England Journal of Medicine. And at that point, everything was very stereotypical. If you had a new onset cardiomyopathy, you did X, Y, Z. And as the years have gone by, I've realized, I think we've all realized, that most of the things that we find in the workup of a cardiomyopathy is actually directed by what we find in the first hour of meeting the patient. So Mm -hmm. it's directed by the history, it's directed by the family history, it's directed by the social history and the physical examination. So that's where you start. In terms of history, you're looking at chronicity. When did this start? How has it progressed? What were other salient features that went along with this? Were there skin rashes? Were there arthritis? Was there chest pain? Whatever. You go through past medical history. Is there a past history of being treated with cancer chemotherapeutic agents for, say, breast cancer? In terms of social history, uh, do they drink? Do they use recreational drugs? In terms of family history, I think this is where we get the biggest bang for our buck. If there was one thing that I wish that we had done at the very beginning of this, it was a, I wish that we had taken a more complete family history dating right back to the beginning of this database. I personally think that more than 30% of idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy is actually familial. And 30% is sort of the low end of the number that you uh, hear published about. So getting genetics counselors involved, making sure you get a good pre-generation history is uh, critically uh, important. And then on physical exam, you're looking for things that might indicate hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, things that might indicate lupus, things such as that. And then when we get to the lab exam, I think it all starts with an EKG. It is very rare for a cardiomyopathy to present with a stone-cold normal ECG. Mm. So you're going to see something, and the more chronic, the more likely it is you're going to see a left bundle branch block or uh, something similar to that. I like a chest x-ray the first time I see a patient. It helps give me a handle on how big the heart is inside the chest wall. I look at pulmonary vasculature. And, of course, everything hangs on echocardiography. Is this heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, that sort of mid-range ejection fraction? And from there, you branch out in terms of how you're going to work this up, how you're going to treat this. As part of the first evaluation, I always like to get a CBC and a comprehensive metabolic panel, a urine analysis, sometimes a sed rate. For new admissions to the hospital, I like a pro-BNP and or a troponin level. I think these help you in terms of prognosis. All of these are things that I'm thinking about within the first 24 hours of meeting a patient with heart failure for the first time. That was a really great overview and definitely highlights the importance of talking to the patient, which we often take for granted. Um, So we're traditionally thought to always start the evaluation with an ischemic eval. Um, And when thinking about your approach to that, how do you evaluate for ischemia in terms of the different options of testing. We now have a lot of different options, don't we? Yes. Back in the old days, it was a stress test and cardiac catheterization, and that's it. And there was lots of left bundle branch block in this population, and so the stress testing wasn't particularly accurate, and so you really ended up with doing cardiac cath. And I still do a lot of cardiac cath, particularly in those people who I'm wondering about what the right heart cath shows. Mm -hmm. Normally, right atrial pressure tracks with left atrial pressure. So if someone 
has high right atrial pressure or low right atrial pressure, you know the left atrial pressure is going to be either high or low. But there are those with a low right atrial pressure, right atrial pressure of one that you can easily see on physical examination, and yet when you do a right heart catheterization, you measure the wedge pressure, all of a sudden you find it's 28. And so there's this big discrepancy. So towards the end of a hospitalization that's required a lot of diuresis, I think it's still a good idea to measure filling pressures and cardiac output. And if I'm going to be doing that, sometimes I just tack on coronary angiography at the same time. However, you could just as easily do coronary CT angiography and only a right heart catheterization, and thus you end up only in, in a vein rather than an artery in a vein. And there's something to be said for that as well. We're really blessed with having great imaging. And with that, I wonder just how much we really need to look at coronary arteries in the in the cath lab. I, I know that disappoints you, Dan. No, no, not taking at all. away his business. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the patient. <laughs> but uh, you know, right heart catheterization still has a big role to play in evaluating patients and treating patients. It sounds like you do think about right heart caths often in at sort of the end of, it sounds like the end of the admission, once you feel that you've diuresed the patient to sort of get a sense of their baseline pressures. Do you do that in all patients that you are that you see admitted with new onset heart failure or? Almost all. I would say it would be a very rare cohort of people who get away without it. Two, three, five percent. 95% in all likelihood are going to end up with some sort of an invasive evaluation of pressures uh, at the end of their hospitalization. What do you see that helps you guide therapy? What are some of the curveballs that you've seen that you wouldn't have been able to assess via echo or your diagnostic skills in the in the clinic room? we got to remember, I'm, I'm relatively old. Huh? <laughs> and, and because of that relatively old school, so I'm not sure that I completely believe all of the echo-guided indices of left atrial pressure. Mm. So I'd prefer to measure it directly for exactly the reason that I've mentioned before. Sometimes there's this big discrepancy between right atrial pressure and left atrial pressure. I think we do a reasonably good job at perfusion. Uh, I think that looking at right atrial pressure is probably one of the last things that comes to most cardiology fellows on the physical examination they learn to auscultate hearts pretty quickly, but for whatever reason, right atrial pressure just lags behind everything else. So there's also something to be said for standing there with your fellow, looking at the right atrial pressure and saying, I think it's eight, and then measuring it and mm. seeing that's what it actually fun. is. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something to be said for that kind of education. I mean, that's how I learned to right. read. Yeah. Dr. Lon Wittstein and I, when he was a fellow, would would look at the jugular venous pressure and then measure it directly right there in the cath lab. And that was invaluable in terms of learning. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say that you pursued an ischemic evaluation and that pans out to be negative. And so you're working under this premise of the large umbrella of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. What additional testing do you pursue at that point to delineate that further and sort of what guides your decision on what to pursue. You mentioned initially the history, family history, so that probably comes into play, but how else do you approach it? Actually, it, does, it comes into play in a big way. Yeah. Probably the first thing I do after finding out that the coronaries are clean is to go back to the patient again and ask them about their family history, hopefully 
while some other family members in the mm, room. Good tip. Because the family member will often say, oh, remember Uncle Bobby died suddenly. <laughs> and, uh, and Aunt Susie um, had shortness of breath and swollen ankles at the end of her life. And so it, all of a sudden you begin to play out a story of a familial process. So that's probably the first thing I do. Um, I, I think there's something to be said for a TSH and an HIV, particularly if uh, there are risk factors for HIV. TSH can be rather apathetic, and and so you can be fooled by that. I think that makes sense for that. All of the other stuff that we once did, the workup for lupus, I can't tell you the last time I found a patient with lupus presenting as a cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. The cardiomyopathies that presented lupus all presented people who've had lupus for years. Mm -hmm. And so there's usually no question about it. The ones that you can occasionally get fooled by are sarcoid. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, Sarcoid can be a great mimic, but we've got much better, much, much better imaging modalities than we did even 10 years ago. And amyloid can sometimes be a little fluky. Amyloid slash fabrase, other things such as that. And then that plays into the question of, okay, when do you do a heart biopsy? And there was anything that Ken Boffman and I were known for back then. It was if you sneezed wrong, you got a heart biopsy. And, <laughs> uh, you know, some uh, volunteers ended up with heart biopsies because they walked past the cath lab. <laughs> That's not true. It's not, yeah. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> so I'm looking for very specific things on the heart biopsy that I can't find any other way. It's unlikely that you're going to make a diagnosis of sarcoidosis based upon the heart biopsy. Right. Because the, the heart biopsy of the granulomas are too patchy. So that's not actually one of the things I'm looking for. But amyloid is easy to diagnose on a heart biopsy. One of the things that's bad to miss is giant cell myocarditis. Mm -hmm. And for someone who presents fairly young, perhaps with other autoimmune diseases, with lots of ventricular tachycardia, this is someone who I think should be biopsied to make sure that we don't miss giant cell myocarditis because it has its own special treatment. And then once we get past that, you know, there's probably not a lot of things that you're going to learn from a heart biopsy. Interestingly, Kavita Sharma has shown in her heart biopsy series of patients with preserved ejection fraction a relatively high incidence of unknown amyloid. About 12% is what she found. And this fits with other people in the country. And there's a fairly high percentage, 12-15% of amyloid and low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. So there's another group that we might consider doing a little bit more work up on before we just attribute it all to the aortic stenosis. Yeah, folks, to, uh, tune into episode nine where uh, Dr. Virginia Hahn actually goes over that study that Dr. Casper just alluded to with Kavita Sharma and biopsies during half path. In terms of additional imaging, though, before, let's say before you're pursuing a biopsy, what would guide your decision on whether to get an MRI or a PET scan? Sure. Actually, the, um, the MRI and the PET scan sort of define who I'm going to biopsy. So Uh I would get a cardiac MRI uh, and or a PET scan before I went off to do a heart biopsy. So again, um, if there's a thought that there might be cardiac sarcoidosis here, uh, here's where imaging really has come to the forefront, both cardiac MRI and PET scan. I view them as sort of complementary. They tell us 
slightly different things, with PET scan telling us more about inflammation, cardiac MRI telling us more about the results of inflammation, which is fibrosis. Uh, so I see a reason to get actually both um, at, at a baseline. Um, if I'm thinking about an infiltrative process like amyloid or hemochromatosis, the diagnosis of hemochromatosis can be made on cardiac MRI, uh, or MRI of the liver at least. So it depends specifically on what I'm looking for. And in order to get to a biopsy, I'm probably going to go through some imaging to try to enrich the population uh, in terms of who I'm going to biopsy. Mm-hmm. You know, biopsy has a fairly low complication rate, but it's not zero. Right. Some people will have a vascular access issue. Other people will have a perforation. Some people will have a bundle branch block. And so if you can avoid it, I think it's probably best to avoid it. So if you were suspicious for cardiac amyloid and you did an MRI and the MRI came back squeaky clean, no evidence of subendocardial fibrosis, would that change your plan for biopsy? Would you cancel the biopsy in such a patient? So it partly depends upon what sort of amyloid we're talking about. So if I'm thinking that this might be transthyretin, I probably would go on to a nuclear medicine scan before I did a biopsy mm-hmm. anyways. And even with a squeaky clean cardiac MRI, I might do that depending upon how likely I felt it was, mm. the pretest probability being high uh, to uh, for transthyretin amyloid. If I was thinking more along the lines of AL amyloid and I had good blood work data to suggest that amyloid might be a problem here, um, I would probably still push on. Uh, where you where you get into trouble in amyloid is not someone who you think's got TTR and their nuclear medicine scans positive. It's someone who you think might have AL amyloid and the TTR scan is sort of weakly positive, uh, or you think they might have TTR amyloid uh, or AL amyloid and the nuclear medicine scan is negative. They're making sure you're dealing with the right amyloid, you've made the right diagnosis, you're treating it the right way, is really important. And um, you know, Willie Sutton, when asked, why did he rob banks, answered, well, that's where the money is. And, <laughs> and for heart biopsy, it's the same sort of thing. If you're worried about amyloid in the heart, why not just biopsy the heart? Especially since with a lot of amyloid, it actually gets harder and harder to perforate the heart because the amyloid is kind of protective. Oh, fascinating. It's like a little shield. Yeah. Ken could actually take a biopsy and tell you whether he thought it was oh, amyloid wow. or not, depending upon how hard it was to pull off the piece. Huh. Wow, that's crazy. I wonder if uh, they could have incorporated that into Kavita's study. Right, exactly. A little survey. Yeah. <laughs> and and Ken was right. The the patients with a lot of amyloid in the heart, uh, it was difficult to get biopsies. That's interesting. It, uh, it was like trying to biopsy a rubber eraser. Right. Wow. Do you have you have his biotome, right? I do. It's sitting right there on the wall. Oh my gosh, oh. we have to take a picture of that. Yeah. So we've got uh, there were at one point twenty one biotomes. Uh, they're all Stanford Caves biotomes uh, really that were cool. designed by Philip Caves, who is at Stanford. Went back to Ireland, where he was from, and unfortunately died young. We ordered them one through twenty one, so that the more you used the Stanford Caves biotome, the more flexible it became. So if you were going to do a new 
cardiomyopath, you wanted to use biotome one, two, three. And if you're going to biopsy somebody who was long out after a heart transplant, who you knew was going to be a pretty stiff heart, you wanted to use biotome 18, 19, 20. <laughs> that is That's cool. great. Yeah. That's great. So uh, they began to throw them out. Um, I uh, heard about it and ran over to the cath lab and got biotome number one and number six, I think that is. Um, two, three, four, and five had already been thrown out. Number one, I, I framed and I gave so to Ken cool. Boffman with a small a plaque that said to Ken Boffman, teacher, friend, mentor. And then number six, I kept for myself. And then when Ken died, his uh, widow gave me number one back. So, so I have nice. number one and number six. Maybe we could put a little um, Ken Boffman memorial on the on this show notes. That's That'd nice. be kind of cool. Yeah, Can we take a picture nice. of those? Before oh, sure. We, yeah. Folks, we'll, add, we'll, we'll, show, we'll display all this on our website so you can get the visual that we're getting and the goosebumps <laughs> that we're experiencing. Um, so lastly, you mentioned the family history and the importance of that and how that might guide your decision to pursue genetic testing. In your experience, how useful have you found genetic testing to be um, in the course of management? So uh, there are certain genetic defects that are associated with a little bit more uh, in the way of arrhythmia. Often, it's not helpful to the patient himself or herself, mm-hmm. but it's really important for their really family. Yeah. Uh, knowing that you've got the genotype without the phenotype allows us to follow for the phenotype more carefully. And at some point, I hope that, that we will have medications that could influence or postpone the development of a phenotype in someone with a genotype. So at this point, I think it's malpractice or nearly malpractice to not counsel a patient with a family history of cardiomyopathy that his or her first-degree relatives should be screened Mm -hmm. with an echo and an ECG every three to five years if they're adults. With with a genetic mutation or or just any? With or without. without. There's a fair number of them that you won't find a genetic mutation. It doesn't mean that they don't have the same risk that other family members, other generations have shown. And so you have to assume that some one of these, and since most of them are autosomal dominant, that a fair number of these are actually going to go on to develop a cardiomyopathy. Right. And then does it matter the age? So say you have a patient who's in their 40s, they come in with a new onset heart failure, their coronaries are without any obstructive disease, and then they tell you, oh, well, my mom had heart failure when she was 70. A little bit. The thing I find surprising about most of the cardiomyopathies is the fact that they obviously have had this genetic defect from birth, and yet it can be decades before they develop Uh, the phenotype. uh. So it's a little unusual for them to develop the phenotype in their 70s and 80s. Usually by the time you get into your 60s, you're sort of, that's it. That's not quite so true with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the phenotype can develop very late. And, of course, they've had it for all these years. And so that raises the question of, um, is there more of an environmental influence here Mm. than we're willing to admit or understand right now? My suspicion is, yes, that's true, that there's other, either other genetic influences or other environmental influences that will impact the rapidity and the severity of the cardiomyopathy that 
a person develops. So really anyone who gives you a family history of cardiomyopathy, you'd pursue genetic testing. Yeah. You know, most of them, most of the dilateds will be a type mutation. Most of the hypertrophs would be um, a sarcomeric mutation, but occasionally you'll you'll be surprised by one thing or the other. Uh, it's not as simple as that, though. Right. You know, not everything comes back as a likely pathologic mutation or variant. There's lots of variables of uncertain significance, and you don't know how to interpret them, and that's where having a really good genetics counselor with you can really help, someone who has really studied this. Obviously, I came to this late in life, and so I, I don't have the background in this that a lot of my colleagues who have been doing this for a long time, like Dan Judge, mm-hmm. uh, brings to it. And so for me, a genetics counselor is, is paramount. I couldn't do it without it. That's right. It's, uh, that's very valuable. Yeah. So to end our interview, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but we have a segment which we like to call What Makes Your Heart Flutter or the Flutter Moments, where we really highlight healthcare providers' wellness. And so we have listeners call in and give a little tidbit about something that they achieved that week. And it could be academic, it could be with patient care, or even like family life, really just anything that made their heart flutter. So in honor of Heart Failure Awareness Week, what makes your heart flutter about heart failure? Well, um, the big picture thing for heart failure for me has always been the heart transplant picnic. For years, we <laughs> we did uh, this. Uh, actually, there was a heart transplant foundation. The heart transplant oh. foundation would run this, and they would uh, all get together in the summertime and, and have a picnic. And it was so nice to see people that you had cared for doing well and, yeah. and out enjoying life, mm-hmm. you know, throwing a football with their kid or, or, or grilling things they shouldn't be grilling on the grill like hot dogs and hamburgers. You know, that's sort of the, the big picture. I think the thing that, uh, that made my heart flutter that had to do with heart failure this week was uh, getting a call from my son on Tuesday. He's down at Georgetown getting a master's in healthcare administration. Yeah. And uh, he's working with a colleague of mine uh, who we trained here at Hopkins, who's now doing heart failure and heart transplant down at the Washington Hospital Center. Uh, and he wanted... Ted to help him, Ted's my son, help him look at devices in patients with amyloid and sarcoid. Mm. And so my son was asking me, what the heck is amyloid uh. and sarcoid? <laughs> so I got the chance to um, to wax poetic about uh, two disorders that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and that was a lot that's of fun. Oh, that's nice. so sweet. You can definitely refer him to our podcast for supplementary knowledge. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, that's terrific. It was really, really wonderful. That made my heart flutter. Yeah, same. <laughs> Let me take a picture of the biotopes. Oh, yeah, go that. take a picture. I hope your phone is You can up to take snuff. them off the wall. And that hat? I know, it's like a train hat. Well, that's what he hat. wore when he would You're do his kidding. heart biopsies. In those days, they didn't make you wear those those stupid puffy those hats. Pods? Take that picture of that hat, too. I know, it's Oh my god, for all of you people, Dr. Casper has gone to the pictures on the wall and has now put on the hat. (laughs) Put on the hat backwards. Green, you have to take a picture of the hat. Oh my god. Yeah, she gave me the hat too. That's so sweet. This was Ken's office. 
And in this corner right there, he had a collection of hats that um, patients had given him that were quite unique. You know, there was the two beer can hats <laughs> and uh, the Rastafarian hat and lots of train hats like that. Well, that was the one that he liked the best. Oh, that was so fun. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Boop. Boop.